Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for being with us on Wednesday, August 23. It was a French writer in 1849 who wrote in French, but then if you translate it into English, it means the more things change, the more they remain the same. I mentioned yesterday that within the Albanese government and indeed Labor governments across Australia, there is now an unstated realisation that this net zero nonsense is leading them into a real economic and energy crisis. Now, remember, Bowen says to reduce emissions by 43%, that's carbon dioxide, not carbon, but they're frightened to mention carbon dioxide because of people like me who keep reminding everybody it's 0.04% of the atmosphere. Tell that to anyone they think is stupid. We're trying to reduce that. Anyway, Bowen says to reduce carbon dioxide emissions by 43% by 2030, we would have to install 22,000 500 watt solar panels every day for eight years. The bloke's stupid. 47 megawatt wind turbines every month. Bowman needs some treatment, I think. I've said from the outset, it's idiocy and it's unattainable. So now what they're telling us? Oh, things are gonna get worse, they say, before they get better. There'll be an intergenerational report tomorrow. Oh, watch the headlines. Grim headlines everywhere. Welcome to the age of softer economic growth, they'll say, for decades. Productivity will decline and that'll lead to a lowering of living standards for Australians. Well, if we keep going the way Bowen and Co are going, it will. We are already facing the worst cost of living crisis in decades. The chickens are coming home to roost. As I've said many times, you reduce the cost of energy and Australia, you, sorry, you increase the cost of energy and Australia loses its competitive advantage. Because energy prices, if they go up, productivity and your standard of living must go down. Let's face it, the Australian household, you listening to me, watching me there, have finite resources, just the weekly pay packet. Now the cost of energy feeds into everything. This desk I'm sitting at was brought in by a truck. Fuel costs go up, so does the cost of the desk. Your groceries didn't just lob on the supermarket shelf, they came via transports. Powered by energy, the energy price goes up dramatically, so does the price on the supermarket shelves. We are facing the early consequences of a disgraceful, damaging and delusional energy policy. Now we see the City of Sydney, the latest council to call for a ban on gas cooktops. I mean, these people could not submit to questioning on the rationale for what they're doing ban new gas cooktops, ovens, gas ovens, gas heaters. And the justification is some ridiculous nonsense about indoor air quality. <laughs> Why didn't we die long ago because of the air quality? What are these people talking about? 
The end result of this is that commercial kitchens in the city of Sydney could be forced to work without gas stoves to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. It's the same story, just a different chapter. Switch to electric only connections. Where you government dopes do you think the electricity comes from? Coal-fired power, which you also want to eliminate. Restaurateurs are talking about induction stoves. That's electric. The overwhelming source of our energy today, as I speak to you, is coal-fired power. Reality is starting to hit some of these ideologically imprisoned politicians. In New South Wales, the government's energy or electricity network review has raised concerns about whether the agency charged with delivering New South Wales's multi-billion dollar renewable energy zones is capable of doing the job. As I said yesterday, someone in the Minns government is a wake up. It's now looking to extend the life of Australia's largest coal-fired power station, a rearing beyond its expected closure date of August 2025. Now, much of this stuff has been inherited from a Liberal coalition government like Keynes' renewable energy zones. Now, the Minns government has written advice that the size of the infrastructure program needed to deliver these zones presents, quote, a significant risk. We are swimming in coal and gas, but we don't want them. The capital costs for the zones are estimated to be over 9 billion, 9,000 million, and you can bet your life that's a conservative estimate in a state which already has $115 billion of debt. But the left-wing net zero emissions activists are now after Chris Minns saying, his economic and environmental credentials are under siege because he wants to extend the life of Australia's largest coal-fired power station. I warn that the collision was coming between this so-called clean energy transition, which it's not, that's just a euphemism for getting rid of coal and gas. So that's the theory. Now it's colliding with reality. All over Australia, wherever you're watching, high energy prices, and unreliable supply are here. The Albanese and Bowen dream proclaimed around the world is becoming an energy nightmare, net zero emissions. In fact, Chris Minns, the new Premier of New South Wales is under pressure to stop local councils from banning gas. Can you believe this? In new homes and businesses. We've gone off our heads here. Well, Chris Minns should ban them. Some politician, some leader, is going to have to get ahead of the curve and openly reject net zero policies. Come on, Peter Dutton, where are you? Get in the ring and fight. You'll be proven right. Paul Kelly, one of our most formidable political observers, rightly tells us today that we're locked into economic underperformance. He said, talk about stagnant living standards, right? Weak wages, rising costs. And then this, quote, the nation excels in mining, resources, agriculture, finance. Six products make up 60% of our exports, he said. Six products, 60%. Coal, iron ore, natural gas, education, gold and wheat. All of them are under attack from the ideologists except education, which continues to be an almost worthless product. More of that later. But the biggest change this country needs, I'm telling you right now, is an attitudinal change. Yet here we are dividing the, dividing the nation on the voice, and apparently the Prime Minister will next week announce October 14 as the date for the referendum. He'll then spend your money in bucket loads, and that's borrowed money, on a yes campaign. The details of which the Prime Minister won't tell us. Now, Penny Wong, 
I think you're a better person than this. But she's joined the chorus of calling the No campaign as racist, simply because some have revealed what this Thomas Mayo has said. Is it racist to remind voters that Mayo is on record as saying that the voice is a campaign tool, quote, to punish politicians and abolish colonial institutions? And quote, he said this, pay the rent, pay reparations and pay compensation. Is it racist to remind voters that Thomas Mayo at a 2021 Invasion Day protest, not Australia Day, Invasion Day, Mayo described, quote, the powers that be, unquote, as quote, unquote, murderers. The same Mayo has told a conference of communists that, quote, there's nothing that we can do that is more powerful than building a First Nations voice, a black institution, a black political force to be reckoned with. Now, come on, Penny Wong, you're better than this. Just because you can't win the debate, don't start branding those who oppose you as being racist. Now, look, every day I know out there you feel voiceless, you shake your heads, as I do, as to where we are heading. Well, it seems today for many, life's about making a complaint about someone and hope that money falls into your lap. Why has the Dutton opposition, and Dutton's a very good man, why have they given up demanding to know how Brittany Higgins got $3 million in a mediation that lasted less than a day, paid up by Labor, but her employers, Linda Reynolds and Michaelia Cash, were excluded from the mediation? Here's a woman who received money for arguing that she'd never be able to work again, but she's now trotting around the world, three million bucks. Well, now the South Australian Independent MP, Rebecca Sharkey, I've never met the woman, but she's facing claims that she bullied, ostracised and humiliated a former staffer. This is now in the federal court. And the staffer claims she experiences stress, insomnia, crying, anxiety, depression. She's arguing that all this started when her hours were reduced from four days a week to three days a week. This was part of the staffing changes rightly introduced by the Albanese government. Quite frankly, there are too many staff in Canberra. I mean, the Prime Minister's got nearly 60. It's ridiculous. Anyway, she says she felt humiliated and diminished because she would no longer be involved in arranging Miss Sharkey's diary. Humiliated and diminished. She said she felt ignored by Miss Sharkey and she felt unwelcome. She was forced to answer to a new manager with whom she'd previously experienced difficulties. I mean, this stuff's out of hand. Get yourself a lawyer, talk about stress, anxiety and depression, and the Higgins precedent suggests there's money in it. And this stuff's on the increase. Politicians, of course, silent and frightened to oppose it. I know General Brexton telling us that at 8.31pm on Saturday evening, last Saturday evening, Bruce Learman wrote to the ACT Chief Justice Lucy McCallum, who presided over that infamous Higgins rape trial, and asked McCallum to lift all relevant remaining non-publication orders and suppression orders in the Higgins-Learman issue so that more light could be shone on those proceedings. The accusation of rape by Brittany Higgins. Fair enough, you'd think. The Chief Justice Lucy McCallum declined the request. Janet L. Brexton rightly reminds us of the observation of one High Court judge who noted that without public scrutiny, quote, abuses may flourish undetected. It's not the first time that Justice McCallum has been asked to lift all remaining non-publication and suppression orders, which prompts the question, why the secrecy? Why would a judge keep material secret? As Lord Brexton says, why would any judge, let alone a Chief Justice, continue to risk a suggestion that they are not fully committed to open justice? While Higgins 
has some internship, this woman will never get a job again, at the Palais des Nations in Geneva. Why should any of the written submissions to the court in the Higgins rape trial, why should any remain secret and not for publication now that the trial is over? Secrecy, presumably, to hide something. What do we say about the courts today? You might get decisions, you may not get justice. And for my New Zealand viewers, great news. No wonder she took off Dame Jacinda Ardern, the hardworking and exhausted Republican Labor leader, but she lined up behind, beside the monarchist King Charles to accept a damehood, a dame grand companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to the state. Well, the greatest service Ardern has done is to leave a Labor Party in disarray. And according to the polls, they're now facing certain defeat at the October 14 election, and thank God for that. Talking about New Zealand, I note a comment by the new Prime Minister about the former all-black coach, Steve Hansen, joining the Wallaby camp in France. And the Prime Minister jokingly said, we should cancel his citizenship. Look, too much has been made of this. Steve Hansen's a good man. I understand that he's in France on business and he's been called in this week only. But as I said yesterday, why not? Eddie Jones has 11 other assistant coaches. Why not invite the King of England next? And in the World Athletic Championships, dreadful coverage of this, appalling coverage, a disgraceful coverage. The young man from Toowoomba Grammar, Matt Denny, has finished fourth in the discus final, but he broke the Australian record again, but he's not happy with coming fourth. The distance he threw would have won most other world championships, 68.24 metres. A phenomenal achievement. And there is a brilliant new fastest woman in the world, an American who can run. Shikari Richardson, spelt peculiarly, S-H-A apostrophe C-A-R-R-I, Shikari Richardson. She fell out of the blocks at the start of the 100 semifinals and just managed to qualify. So that put her in lane nine in the final, 10.65 seconds, unbelievable. And in so doing, she denied the 36-year-old Shelley Ann Fraser Price her sixth world title in the 100 metres. Fraser Price looked the winner until the 23-year-old Richardson exploded over the top of them. Richardson's got, by the way, 2.4 million Instagram followers. Shakari Richardson is her name. My name's Alan Jones, and you're watching ADH. Look, I mentioned at the weekend when I spoke at that CPAC conference that the comments by Bjorn Lomborg and Jordan Peterson had pressing relevance for where we are today when they wrote, and I quote, the meaningful exchange of truly diverse ideas and perspectives has withered over recent decades. We need to foster and promote critical thinking and constructive discussion, unquote. Well, on this issue of AUKUS, there has been little critical discussion. The Prime Minister via senior right and left faction power brokers managed to have inserted into the Labor Party's nation platform last weekend a 32 paragraph statement on AUKUS. The Prime Minister promised 10,000, quote, secure, well-paid, unionised jobs in South Australia and promised to inspire, quote, a world without nuclear weapons. This was a last minute deal. There are many people on both sides of politics and amongst the punters, who are not in love with all this language of war. They would argue it's easy for these politicians who would never pick up a gun and go into combat. They expect others to do it. As always, the business world is silent. Fear, as we've seen with coronavirus and climate change, spiced with a liberal dose of untruths, wins the day. 
Senior Labor ministers at the conference warned that China would have 21 nuclear submarines and 200 major warships in the water by 2030. Pat Conroy is the Defence Industry Minister, a left faction power broker, and he attacked those who supported what he called a Robert Menzies appeasement. Now, Conroy is a factional ally of Albanese. He was heckled by ALP delegates over the alleged $400 billion cost of the submarines. Conroy was accused of taking Australia to war. Conroy said AUKUS is, quote, a progressive policy that would deter conflict and, quote, protect our people by adding strong defence capabilities on our own. Mr Conroy said, the central question for delegates here is how to prevent war. The truth is, he said, strength deters war, appeasement invites conflict. He said, if you are pro-human rights, you need to be pro-AUKUS. If you're pro-peace, you need to be pro-AUKUS. If you're pro-advanced manufacturing, you need to be pro-AUKUS. He said, this is in the national interest. The Deputy Prime Minister, Richard Miles, who led negotiations to get them over the line, said, quote, we're witnessing the single biggest conventional military build-up in the world since the end of the Second World War. He said, quote, in the year 2000, China had six nuclear-powered submarines. By the end of the decade, they'll have 21. He said in the year 2000, China had 57 major warships. By the end of this decade, they'll have 200. He said, these are not our decisions. These are not our choices, but this is the world in which we live. And it is our unavoidable obligation to navigate our way through it, unquote. Out there, the voter, if my correspondence means anything, expects government to navigate itself away from war without that being described as appeasement. It is fair to say that dozens of Labor branches passed motions opposing the AUKUS commitment. I should say that under AUKUS, the AUKUS deal, Australia and the US and the UK, hence AUKUS, they will share nuclear propulsion technology with Australia and our Navy will acquire at least eight nuclear-powered submarines armed with conventional weapons to be built in Australia. Or so they think. That's what they're talking about. If you are to believe what you're told, and I'm not sure I do, this is about acquiring, operating and eventually building nuclear-powered submarines. The argument in favour is allegedly record investment in defence, skills, jobs and infrastructure. When you talk about the cost of $400 billion, with that money, you could give $1 million to every resident of Geelong, Hobart or Wollongong and have some left over. You might recall that when AUKUS was announced in September 2021 by the former Morrison government and now adopted by the Albanese government, the former Prime Minister Paul Keating described it as, quote, the worst foreign policy decision by Labor government since the attempted introduction of conscription during World War I. Mr Keating argued that, quote, a contemporary Labor government is shunning security in Asia for security in and within the Anglosphere, said Paul Keating. Any Prime Minister that shops Australia's prerogatives and interests to another power will always be fated and celebrated by that power. Tony Abbott, on the other hand, argues that Mr Keating is, quote, seriously wrong about AUKUS and the submarine project and about the rapidly intensifying strategic competition from the government in Beijing. But in a veiled concern for this expensive AUKUS arrangement, Tony Abbott did say, quote, obtaining a nuclear-powered submarine from Britain or America was an option I wish had been available back in 2015, 
once my preference for quickly obtaining Japanese submarines off the shelf had been torpedoed by the cargo cult politics of South Australia. Says Tony Abbott, Keating is quite wrong that Beijing means no harm to anyone. Tell that to the Uyghurs or to the people of Hong Kong, whose suppression was economic self-harm that Beijing was more than happy to endure in the pursuit of national aggrandizement. Well, this is central to the point I made earlier. We've become a nation of one idea. The world of debate has passed us by. We don't have a contest of ideas. Oppose the response to coronavirus means you're automatically anti-vaccination, no matter how many times you've been vaccinated. Oppose climate change and you're a conspiracist or a denier. Paul Keating of splendid intellect expresses concern with AUKUS and he's attacked from all sides. Surely over what will be more than $400 billion, we need debate. Well, entering into this very important debate is the former foreign minister and the longest continually serving premier of New South Wales, Bob Carr. And Mr Carr joins me here. Bob Carr, this is a bit like coronavirus and energy policy. You're only allowed one view. But can we just get this thing out of the road to start with? When you and Paul Keating start expressing your views on AUKUS, they say you're a China apologist. Well, let me say this. Without any equivocation, without any qualification, I believe that the rise of China, including its military accoutrements, requires a response by Australia. It requires a response. And I would, if I were in charge of these things, I'd be having the, the most lethal submarines operating in the waters to our north as soon as we could get them. I would put that plan in contrast with an AUKUS proposal that may see us without those subs until the 2050s. There are very valid questions to be asked here. If, you can, if you're saying, as Richard Miles is saying, and I, I don't disagree with him, I think he's a, a great defence minister, but if he's saying in 2030, we face this challenge from China's investment in its own defences, then I'm saying, let's have a plan that puts lethal Australian submarines in the waters to our north in the 2030s. As AUKUS is going, as AUKUS is going, it could be a wait into the 2050s before we get an AUKUS sub into Australia's waters. Well, let me just go back a bit. I, I take everything you've said and I'll touch on each of those points in a moment. Just on AUKUS passing, because you're a senior Labor figure in this country, passing through the Labor conference, <coughs> out there in voter land, do you think Labor people are happy with this? No, they're not. You, you couldn't stand up at a Labor Party branch meeting and get a, a motion in favour of this. There are too many questions. For example, for example, at my own local Labor Party branch where this has been aired, um, there've been there's been a lively interest in the fact that for the cost, this staggering, this eye-watering figure, this inconceivable figure of 400 billion over the life of the contract, uh, that for that cost, without touching the sides, without, without coming close to the 400 billion line, we could have 20 state-of-the-art subs in the waters to our north, and any submariner will tell you 20's a big number, a dozen would probably do the job, and getting there, being there, running patrols in the 2030s as the last of the six Colin-class subs have got to be retired. Now, uh, only, only yesterday in the Financial Review was, there, was, was, was an article about 
the strong push now, can't be ignored in the US Congress, saying to two leading Republicans, July 27, sent a letter to Joe Biden, saying, we can't allow AUKUS to go ahead. The Australians are nice people, but if we peel off from our production process, three of our Virginia-class subs, forget five, forget the promised five, but if we peel off three, we won't be able to reach the target of a nuclear fleet, a fleet of Virginia-class nuclear subs by 2030, numbering 61. America's at 49. They could, they could fall back, as the older ones are retired, to 45 in 2030, but they're in competition with the Chinese and they don't think they can win that competition if they're peeling off their own subs and selling them to Australia. Just yeah. bear this in mind, Alan, that, that America produces 1.2 new Virginia-class mm. subs a year. Yeah. It's very hard to pump up to the desirable two new Virginia-class yeah. yeah. a year because of work, workforce shortages, not a shortage of cash, but the problem we're all running into, Europe and uh, in respect of Ukraine and everything else, having, having the volunteers for defence, and in this case, for defence production. Yes, that story from America was very interesting that you've alluded to. I mean, put it in layman's language, they're virtually saying, are they not, that the likelihood of us getting Virginia-class nuclear submarines is limited because America has no spare capacity to build more Virginias, which is your point that you just made, not about money, but really about skills, but they can't afford to give us Virginia-class nuclear submarines out of their existing production line because the US Navy needs them. Yeah, now, and, and, and pick it up there. Don't forget what the AUKUS plan is, that in the early 2030s, we'd have three to five Virginia-class submarines purchased from America, uh, 50 billion or so, to get those, those three to five operating in Australian waters. Now, if America says, if, if the US Congress is is... Is, is oppressed with the feeling that to do that would take America behind yeah. in this, in yeah. this yeah. race yeah. with point. the Chinese yeah. for more nuclear subs to get the dominance with China over China on nuclear sub numbers, then you can see a president, probably someone, a Democrat other than Biden, uh, it, might be, it might be the son of Trump, uh, a Republican other than Trump, who's getting advice from Secretary of Defence that says, look, these Aussies are good allies, Mr. President, but if we peel off from our production line, three to five Virginia class, we're gonna be fatally behind in the arms race with China. Mm. Now, that would leave us, because of the decision that we've walked into, all gung-ho for AUKUS, the great god AUKUS, that would leave us without submarine protection as the Collins class are retired in the 2030s, Absolutely. waiting, mm. waiting on a tardy British shipyard that's yeah. quite notorious for cost overruns and delays to, to run off the new, as yet entirely undesigned submarine, the Special Orcas class, mm. 2050s. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it'd take, it'd take 10 years to design it <laughs> and then 10 years to build it. That's the Orcas submarine. Let me just go back to that of the Congress. I mean, there they are. Let's take the here and now. And how valid is this? All this hoopla about AUKUS is done and they're all congratulating one another and taking pictures and so on. But there is a very strong argument from US legislators that selling Australia three Virginia-class submarines would worsen, that's what's being said now, the US Navy's shortfall of nuclear-powered submarines. So Bob Carr, supply Australia with submarines and the US falls short. 
So where are we? It does seem as though this AUKUS deal is invalid almost before it's begun. Well, I, I had my article in the Sydney Morning Herald appear on Monday, tentatively raising a question mark over the American readiness to supply us and raising the question of where we're going to be if they opt not to. And you wouldn't believe it, before my article's off the Herald website, there's an article on the Financial Review website that says a discussion paper prepared for Republican congressmen in Washington says we shouldn't, we simply shouldn't be giving subs to the Australians mm. because mm. it would leave the US order of battle mm. disadvantaged in the race with the Chinese. Yes. Now, now, can, can the, the, the Republican leadership, Senator Wicker and Senator Collins, with the support, I think of, uh, I, I think of about 30 of their yep, Republican yep, colleagues, yes. shot that letter through. To the, the letter went off to the, the president dated July 27, this is happening fast, saying we happening cannot quickly. proceed with it, the AUKUS that's deal. That's the point, it is happening quickly. And that document you refer to as the US Congressional Research Service, yep. and it's arguing, and this is just this week, that AUKUS could fail to live up to its deterrence objectives with nuclear-powered submarines in Australian hands. Now, they say, the report says, and I quote, sceptics of transferring Virginia-class submarines from the United States to Australia might argue that it could weaken deterrence of potential Chinese aggression if China were to find reason to believe, correctly or not, that Australia might use the transferred Virginia-class boats less effectively than the US Navy would use them if yeah. the boats were retained in US Navy service or that Australia might not involve its military, including its Virginia-class boats in a US-China crisis that Australia viewed as not engagingly important. Now, all of these, this is my point about debate, the reason I'm speaking to you, Bob Carr, former foreign minister. I mean, shouldn't this stuff be discussed instead of just hands up, congratulate ourselves, it's all happening? It isn't happening at all, is it? It's not happening. It's not happening. Tony Abbott is entitled to make the point that if he'd been able to grab off the shelf mm -hmm. the Japanese subs, they would be in the waters to our north now. Now. And they're, they're pretty effective. And the latest version of those Saruo class are very effective, I'm told. Um, but then, then Malcolm Turnbull, to give him credit, in that, in that very formidable, well-argued bid for the French subs yep. that are very lethal, the French mm. wouldn't settle for anything less. And 55 billion. And, and fi uh, 55 billion, <laughs> which every, everyone thought at the time, Alan, was a huge price, <laughs> but 55 billion, press the fast play button, yeah. and we're looking at 400 billion, 400 billion. Yep. 400 billion. Um, Malcolm Turnbull would say, if you, you pressed him, um, well, look, if that had gone ahead, the first would be arriving in the 2030s. Given what's happening in the US Congress, there's a serious possibility that they won't be handing over their subs to Australia mm. because, Alan, we're too compliant an ally. The discussion in the Oval Office would go something like this. The Secretary of Defence talking to the President, whoever it is at the time, saying, look, we did enter this agreement with, uh, with the Australians. We call it AUKUS. You might have heard of it, Mr President. Well, the President, the president in, in three years' time might, might not have heard of it. He might, might not, he or she might not have a stake in this at all. The Secretary of Defence would say, well, I think we're going to have to tell the Australians the, the pressing urgency of our competition with China means that we're going to require 
every that's last it. nuclear right. sub because because we can't squeeze that's more that's than 1.2 new no. Virginia class out of our dockyards. No. No. It's impossible. We yeah. haven't got the workforce. No, that's it. And, and at the same time, as I speak to the former foreign minister here, Bob Carr, those Republicans and the Democrats are demanding more funding from the White House to boost American production of submarines before they'll agree to any transfer of Virginia-class boats to America. They're virtually saying, Mr President, listen, unless you provide more, mo more money, uh, this deal can't go ahead. Now, this is a report from a US Congressional Research Service. It's the first examination <coughs> of this AUKUS sale. So, uh, Bob Carr, it's clear that the plans to build additional attack submarines to replace those sent to Australia would require, as you said, a lift in production from 20 submarines, that's an average of two a year, to 23 to 25 submarines over the next decade. And Americans say it can't be done. Yeah, yeah, work, work, workplace shortages, yeah. you, you, skilled personnel, you can't recruit them because the, the, you know how low unemployment is America and how responsive their labour market is. The workforce simply go off to look for uh, more remunerative job, including in 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 the new industries fueled by all Biden's investment in renewables and other infrastructure. Now, there's a lot of competition for skilled workers, and the shortage of workers is the reason America is struggling to lift the output of those Virginia. Now, for Australia, the terrifying possibility. I mean, this, this comes just after my party went a bit gaga, celebrating the AUKUS package at its Brisbane National Conference. Um, You've got the story that the Fin Review had really deserved to be front page everywhere, everywhere else because it, tick, it kicks one of the stools out from under the, uh, the AUKUS yeah. table. Yeah, I mean, this report uh, released this week says that America wants to lift its fleet of nuclear submarines from 49 to 66. Now, the question being asked is, OK, will America shrink that demand by selling <laughs> submarines to us? And if you're going to have a nuclear base in Australia, or Port Kembla, Newcastle, Brisbane, they don't want to know anything about any of this. Where do you think, wrap this up, uh, Bob Carr, where do you think this stands? Where are we? Well, I, I think on the bottom line, Alan, um, I, I, I think the heavens are going to be laughing at us. Um, this AUKUS overinflated, uh, the absurd alliance rhetoric that we've heard is capable of shrinking to, to nothing more than this. Before the mid-2050s, all we're going to have as a symbol of AUKUS is forward deployment in, in Western Australia of US and UK nuclear-propelled submarines mm. with a, a lot of concern in Australia about whether they're uh, nuclear-armed mm. as well. And if someone impolitely asks, well, where are the promised Australian subs? Where, where, where's That's our it. sovereign That's capacity? Well, we're, we'd be saying that for the first time yeah. since the early 60s, we are without subs with an Australian commander and an Australian crew. And again, in a bipartisan spirit, um, uh, Tony Abbott, um, Malcolm Turnbull, with their commitment in one case to the French, the other to, other to the Japanese, yeah. would be saying, well, if we'd gone Buy for those lethal versions yes, of conventional subs, we'd have a porcupine strategy to secure this continent. Mm. You go back to, to, to who's an appeaser, uh, the wrong word. This is about which form of defence secures Correct. this continent and the Correct. people, the, the Australian people. Yeah, I, think, I yeah. favour a, po a porcupine strategy with the most effective, with, with, with 12 or 20 
conventional right. subs able to able to command the waterways to our north, plus because, because we haven't overinvested in a single platform, defence platform, we'd have the money for the combination of missiles, drones and other technologies yep, um, and, and the first-rate attack air force to see that this continent could not be harmed or touched or intimidated in any way. Excellent, excellent stuff. And I, I just must end here by saying I read that article of yours uh, a couple of days ago and in one part of that you said... And this is the guts of it. This is the former Foreign Minister, Bob Carr, and this is a man with scholarship on his side. He said, there is no precedent for building a submarine hull in one country, installing another country's technology and assembling it in a third country, that's us, that has no nuclear expertise. And of course, that means we're not going to get these things. We'll keep talking about it. Uh, Bob Carr, I really thank you Great for your Alan. input because this debate is really important and it has to be had. Whether politicians have got the brains, the courage and the self-effacement to say, listen, we might have got this wrong, I don't know. The documents are all signed. Will we have anything in the water? I suspect we won't. Thank you for your time. Terrific, Alan. Thank you. Not at all. There's Bob Carr, former foreign minister. Now, look, following on from what I said last night, it appears big business who spend half their time sucking up to government are now starting to panic. What disgraceful leadership is evidenced from the corporate world almost always, mostly gutless sheep following the stupidity of government and frightened to open their mouth to condemn. When I spoke last Saturday, I referred to a piece by Bjorn Lomborg and Jordan Peterson, which argued, and I quote, the meaningful exchange of truly diverse ideas and perspectives has withered over recent decades. We need to foster and promote critical thinking and constructive discussion. Now, I raised this with uh, Bob Carr, the former foreign minister. Now, that's the last thing the left want. But the challenge seems to frighten off most conservatives. Lomborg and Peterson argue, and I quote, consider the world's response to the COVID pandemic. A panic-stricken lockdown orthodoxy far too soon took hold and those whose policy proposals deviated quickly were labelled COVID deniers. They went on. Governments that went the farthest were fated by public intellectuals and the newspaper opinion pages. Thus, we saw increases of inequality in income distribution and wealth, widespread loss of employment, substantive declines in spending, except by government, general deterioration in economic conditions, serious declines in mental health and wellbeing, delayed and diminished access to healthcare, and record high levels of domestic violence. The education, they said, of children was particularly affected. School closures on average robbed children of more than seven months of education. He said the huge, or they said, the huge impact on kids' knowledge could end up costing $17 trillion in lifetime earnings. Poor children, girls, and children with disabilities suffered the largest losses, unquote. And then this point. Campaigners, and this is critical, isn't it? And news organisations plant fear. Now, I raised this uh, with John Larter last night. Campaign, campaigners and news organisations plant fear in the form of floods and storms and droughts while neglecting to mention the reductions in poverty and increases in resilience mean climate-related disasters kill even fewer people. They went on. Over the past century, deaths have dropped 97%. They said heat waves capture the headlines. Globally, however, cold 
kills nine times more people. They said the higher temperatures arguably characterising the century have resulted in 166,000 fewer temperature-related deaths overall. Lomborg and Peterson went on, fear-mongering and the suppression of truly inconvenient truths are pushing us dangerously towards the wrong solutions. They said politicians and pundits call en masse for net zero policies that will cost far beyond $100 trillion while producing benefits a fraction as large, unquote. And rightly they say, we need to be able to have an honest discussion of costs and benefits, a true reckoning of the facts to find the best solutions, unquote. Now it's almost laughable, isn't it? Quote, an honest discussion of costs and benefits? You're kidding me. When have we ever had that on coronavirus or on global warming, which has now disappeared from the language, it's now called climate change. Instead, a heap of nonsense that carbon dioxide, which is 0.04% of the atmosphere, could be so damaging us that we must close down coal-fired power stations, ban gas appliances, take petrol cars off the road. The madness is breathtaking. And as I've said many times, Bowen, Chris Bowen, whom Terry McCran rightly calls our national twerp in chief, with his, this is Terry McCran, with his quote, mad, bad and utterly insane campaign to destroy our electricity system, unquote. That's Terry McCran. I've said Bowen is dangerous. Terry McCran has made the point. If we cut, shut, shut down coal production and ban gas, quote, I invite you to see the Bowen future playing out in real time right now in the UK, but with some, and for us, utterly disastrous differences. It was coming up for dawn. This is Terry McCran telling the story of England. It was coming up for dawn on Wednesday in the UK. That's last Wednesday. Just over 24,000 megawatts of electricity was being demanded. And how much was the UK getting from wind and solar? Which according to our local lunatic Bowen will be our power future. This is Terry McCran speaking. According to the official electricityinfo.org website, all of 90 megawatts. Obviously the sun wasn't shining. And right around the UK, both onshore and offshore, the wind was not blowing either. Terry McCran went on. Wind in the UK has the laughably designated installed capacity of something like 15,000 megawatts. But occasionally the wind doesn't blow anywhere and it gets effectively zero, a big fat zero from all that very expensively installed capacity. He means wind turbines everywhere. So Terry McCran asks, where does the other 23,900 megawatts come from? Well, they too have closed down coal-fired power. So they have 350 megawatts from that, but 14,700 megawatts from gas generation. We'll bring back Terry McCran, quote, are we going to be building a fleet of gas-powered stations? Heck no. Bowen and other idiots, like Victorian Premier Chairman Dan, this is Terry McCran, are even trying to turn off gas for direct household and industry use. The next biggest supply, around 4,100 megawatts, was nuclear. He says, our itinerant PM has just firmly ruled out that future, unquote. Well, to compound the joke of what we're being fed about the tomorrow world of renewable energy, as Terry McCran points out, they were still 3,000 megawatts short, 30 times what the entire wind and solar installations were supplying. So the other 3,000 megawatts were coming from extension cords, into a number of European grids. So Terry McCrown asks, remind me please, Mr Bowen, who are we going to plug our extension cords into? New Zealand, Indonesia, the moon? 
As I said at the outset, business now might wake up to their stupidity in endorsing this nonsense. We were told in the latest intergenerational report to be released tomorrow, Australia would have to find an extra 140 billion a year, every year for the next four decades to pay for health, aged care, the NDIS, defence, and of course, interest payments on the national debt. 140 billion a year, every year for the next 40 years. Business is now trying to pretend that having set fire, along with government, to the national building, they then know how to put the fire out. You tell me one big business that's not supported net zero. Like The Voice, these people are damaging to the interests of people who have no voice. The Business Council would have you believe they've got a blueprint to secure the nation's future. I talked about tossers last week. Well, this is the umbrella under which tossers sit. The Business Council of Australia, supporting The Voice, supporting net zero, doing nothing about the degraded education provided by universities, yet they can see these university products coming into their workplace every day. But business is too frightened to stick its head up and say, we are heading in the wrong direction. Now they're saying, big business, oh, oh, we don't like these energy interventions. Uh, we need a fresh plan to hit ambitious green targets if we're going to achieve pollution cuts by 2035. So carbon dioxide is a pollutant, is it? What school did some of these people go to? It's an invisible gas that's the source of all plant life. And the hoax is that a gas, which is 0.04% of the atmosphere, requires us to stand our own economic well-being on its head. Get rid of gas, get rid of coal, legislate against nuclear, and you'll finish up, I'm telling you, with economic ruin. And the mob that have taken us down this path won't be here to be punished for their economic vandalism. Remember, as I've said often, Michael Schellenberger was a world-renowned environmental activist for 20 years. In his book, Apocalypse, Apocalypse Never, you've got to read this, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, he apologised in July 2020 for, quote, the climate scare we've created over the past 30 years. He said, quote, once you realise how badly misinformed we've been, it's hard not to feel duped. Professor Stephen Coonan, to whom I've spoken before, told me he could not get a major media interview in America about his book Unsettled, but this bloke was Barack Obama's chief scientist. In his book Unsettled, he wrote, leaders talk about existential threat, climate emergency, disaster, crisis, but in fact, when you actually read the literature, there is no support for that kind of hysteria. The science is insufficient to make useful projections, he says, about how the climate will change in coming decades, much less what effects human beings will have on it. Well, I'm saying to all Australians, you listen to what Terry McCran calls our local lunatic Bowen, you can, I won't. I reminded the Conservative conference at the weekend of Joseph Goebbels, the German Nazi politician and minister for propaganda from 1933 to 1945, one of Hitler's closest and most devoted associates, who said, and I quote, if you tell a lie big enough and keep reporting it, people will eventually come to believe it. The lie can be maintained only for such time as the state can shield the people from the political, economic, and or military consequences of the lie. It thus, this is Goebbels, becomes vitally important for the state to use all of its powers to repress dissent. For the truth is the mortal enemy of the lie. And thus, by extension, the truth is the greatest enemy of the state." Unquote. We've reached the stage where the energy truth 
has to compete with the energy lies of Bowen and Co, politicians on both sides of the parliament. So the voter has to make sure that the energy truth wins. Well, let's go to America because it had to happen. Whatever the Democrats have in mind in America, they don't seem able to withstand now the momentum behind the Hunter Biden fiasco. And as Peggy has warned for many weeks, the Hunter Biden cover-up is reaching the point of being uncovered with its tentacles stretching right to the president himself. My own view is that Joe Biden can't last. Let's go to Peggy in America. Peggy, thank you for your time. But before we do, just a word on Tropical Storm Hillary, not Clinton, of course, Tropical Storm Hillary. Reports here, and the pictures are horrific, the southwest coast of the United States being smashed with heavy rain. They're telling us here sending floodwaters into the state's mountains and deserts. Now, Peggy, officials haven't released detailed information on the damage. How bad is it? Well, thank you, Alan, for having me on. And this certainly was a historic storm. We are in the middle of hurricane season, but typically we see them in the south and on the east coast. And this was the first hurricane to hit the west coast of the United States since 1939. So this really was historic. And we're in the middle of summer. So this is an incredibly dry season. We typically don't get any measurable rain in the west coast this time of year. And so some places saw upwards of 10 inches. And so there was a lot of flooding. There was a lot of damage, but I think we really dodged a bullet. It could have been a lot worse. And in fact, the predictions were that it could have been a lot worse. Just come to places like Palm Springs, which is in the desert, but of course known for stylish hotels, golf courses, spas, and that mid-century modern architecture. Uh, will all of this survive the floodwater? It will. And, you know, I think we're so fortunate that we did dodge a bullet in a way because you look at the management of the state under Gavin Newsom and he can barely control day to day operations of California. And I can't imagine what would have happened if a major natural disaster had occurred in the state. And so I think we're fairly fortunate. Of course, there was loss of property, but to my knowledge, there was no loss of life. And so we're grateful for that, even really? though these storms really? were historic and flooding did occur. Just, just for the benefit of our viewers and a little bit of geography. I understand the outer edge of the storm. So if you look at the reach of it where the storm has affected, the areas in diameter are 650 kilometres. So, you know, that's almost from here, from Sydney to, to Brisbane, give and take a few kilometres, uh, which is why I suppose Los Angeles is being lashed with heavy rain and wind, even though it's not in the storm's path. Uh, as you say, it's the first tropical storm, what? to hit Southern California in 84 years. Yeah, and you know, from San Diego at the southern border all the way through Los Angeles, then the storm tipped eastward. And you know, it was a massive storm. As you know, I'm a lifelong Californian. I've got a lot of family in Southern California. So I was tracking closely, even though I wasn't there at the time, but it did provide a lot of rainfall. And I guess if there's something good, we're going into our massive fire season of September and October in Southern California. And so perhaps this will lessen the impact of fire season moving forward. Yes. And, and is Tropical Storm Hillary finished or I understand it's heading to Nevada. Is it weakening? It's definitely weakening because there's no big bodies of water um, in Nevada. And so it is lessening as it goes along. But it certainly brought a wallop of rain to the West Coast, which is unusual for this time of year. 
And just on fires, uh, by, by the way, um, just one fact that I'm sure our viewers will be interested in, in Los Angeles, a thousand flights were cancelled and more than 4,700 flights were delayed. Disneyland was closed. Just on fires, uh, Biden and Hawaii, an embarrassment. Yeah, absolutely. And one more thing with that um, hurricane that went through Southern California, there also was a 5.1 earthquake just north of Los Angeles. And so one of my daughters who lives in Southern California texted me and she said, Mom, is this the end times? I mean, it really, yeah. between the hurricane and the earthquake was really a very frightening few days in Southern California. But to your point in Hawaii, this has been a terrible tragedy. We've seen wildfires um, whip through the Maui Island um, in Old Town Lahaina, one of the most heavily populated areas of Maui. And the president's response on the tail end of this has been nothing short of despicable. We have 114 people confirmed dead. There's upwards of a thousand people, including tons of children that are still listed as missing. Then they estimate that the death toll could rise to close to a thousand people. And so this is a catastrophic loss of life. It's historic as far as wildfires go. And the president has been basically silent on it. When he was asked for his comment, he said no comment. He finally went and you know took a few hours off between two vacations he's been on to go see the damage for himself. And while he was there, the callousness of this man, he brought up a story about his own kitchen fire that had happened a couple of years ago that threatened his Corvette and his cat. And then while he was on the ground there, he commented on, wow, the ground here is still really hot. I mean, this is a man who was supposed to be a uniter. He's supposed to be a family man and empathetic. And he has proven to be the exact opposite of that. This is the time when the nation looks to great leadership. And Joe Biden has proved incapable of providing that leadership when Americans need it most. And what about the water issue? Well, in only the green crazies, as they can, you know, make things all about themselves, there's a report and yet to be confirmed, but there's talk that the water allocated to the fire was delayed for up to five hours because of this issue they call water equity. And so they needed to make sure that some people on the island had given permission for the water to be used for the fire. So as this massive fire is decimating the entire town of Lahaina, they're you know complaining that it's water equity and that was an excuse for not responding to the fire as quickly and as swiftly and as fully staggering. as they should have. Just staggering stuff. Uh, Donald Trump is nothing if not courageous. I understand he will go to Georgia and let them arrest him. Uh, but it seems, Peggy, as the indictments increase, the gap between Donald Trump and the Republican primary rivals just widens. It absolutely does. And yes, it's rumored that on Thursday, we don't know what time, he will surrender and be booked there in Georgia. Two of the people who were named out of the 18 surrendered today in Georgia. Three others have asked to be transferred to federal courts because they're saying that their indictment, indictments came under their capacity serving the federal government in the White House. But we do expect that Donald Trump will surrender sometime on Thursday. Whether he will be fingerprinted or a mugshot taken, we do not know. But 
the Georgia district attorney has just been incredulous in the way she has approached this. She has claimed that Donald Trump is a flight risk. She's put the bail at $200,000. I mean, here's a man who's under 24-7 Secret Service protection. He's the most rec recognizable face on the planet, and she's calling him a flight risk. I mean, this is just insulting, and it shows that they will go to mm. no end <laughs> Absolutely. to get this man. Well, they I understand. said that he'll go to court in September, but of course the Trump people have asked to push it back. Uh, CBS News, YouGov poll of likely Republican voters found 62% support Trump and 16% DeSantis. Peggy, the others are in single figures. Will they continue in this campaign if they can't raise the money? Well, it'll be hard for somebody who doesn't com compete in the next debate um, tomorrow to continue, but we'll see what they decide to do. The challenge for Donald Trump is I think that his base is very secure. Those who love him will continue to support him no matter what. Those who hate Donald Trump will not support him no matter what. The middle is where he needs to be concerned. He needs to pick off some Biden voters who are willing to take a look at him once again. The fact that he keeps being tied up in court makes that logistically possible for him to campaign and also just is giving this sense of messiness. And people look at it if they didn't vote for Trump before and say, well, you know, it, it's, it's just messy and I'm not sure I wanna go there. And, you know, Biden's got his legal issues, Trump Trump's got his legal issues, but Donald Trump really needs to find a way to make the case to them because those are the voters that are really going to matter mm, and push him over in correct. the next election. I mean, ask, asked about the latest indictment in Georgia, 77% in a CBS poll said they view it as politically motivated. So at the end of the day, he's going to do the Tucker Carlson interview, is he, rather than the Republican debate? Yeah, it looks like he will not participate in the debate. And I think that we will have eight candidates on the stage. You know, I wish that he would debate because we know that's where he shines. And it's really not about debating the other candidates that are up there. It's really about making the case to the American people and reminding them. And in fact, last week on your show, you covered this in great detail all the successes that occurred in the United States yeah. under his presidency. And I wish he could once again stand on the stage and remind people of how good things were under a Trump presidency. Peggy, because we're seeing the opposite. Right Peggy, what about this 38-year-old Vivek Ramaswamy, an American entrepreneur? He's a graduate of Yale and Harvard. His parents are Indian immigrants. He founded a biotech company in 2014. Last year, he co-founded Strive Asset Management, which is an investment firm, interestingly, that positions itself in opposition to environmental, social and corporate governance. He's seen as a, an anti-woke activist. And only this month, Forbes magazine estimated that Ramaswamy has a net worth of more than 950 million. 950 million doesn't criticise Trump. Would he be a good running mate? Well, Vivek continues to say that he's not running for vice president. He's running for president of the United States, and he will get a chance to introduce himself to the United States and really the world uh, tomorrow during the debate. He is smart. He's savvy. He's successful. He's a great American success story. And so I'm glad he's in the race, and I hope that whether it's this is his turn or not, that he will continue to be in leadership for the United States and for the conservatives moving forward. All right. Well, now, Peggy, <clears throat> Peggy the vultures are certainly circling now uh, Joe Biden. Uh, Donald Trump called the Ukrainian President Zelensky in July 2019, asking the newly elected Ukrainian President to look into whether the then Vice President Joe Biden 
in 2016 had pressured Ukraine to sack its top prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, who'd been looking into Burisma, the Iranian, Iranian gas company, whose board Hunter Biden had joined in May 2014. This upset the Speaker Pelosi and led to the first effort to impeach Donald Trump. Peggy, as the evidence is now emerging, Trump was right to make the call. He absolutely was. And isn't it interesting they impeached Trump over asking questions, which he was right about, but have not gone after anybody who was involved in the call or guilty of the things that were being questioned by Donald Trump. And this is continuing to get increasing coverage and the mainstream media um, can no longer ignore this. It is getting more coverage. There is more curiosity for what's on the other side of this. And it'll be interesting to see how much the Republicans can get their hands on additional information and how much appetite there is for the left to go ahead and let this in indictments of Joe Biden go ahead and proceed. So mm. will they let <laughs> well, this that's right. I mean, the issue is The fact is the prosecutor was sacked. Uh, did Joe Biden's intervention stop the prosecution of Burisma? And a lot of people want to find out about that and whatever else can be done. Peggy, all this is perfectly legitimate. Isn't it true that now, following a stack of new evidence, and Adam Crichton has brilliantly related this for News Limited here to us in the Australian newspaper, there's new evidence including Hunter Biden's laptop, bank records, FBI documents, congressional testimony, which quotes suggest that not only had Joe Biden corruptly lent on Ukraine, but that he had for years been the golden goose atop an unseemly operation of peddling family influence. How much is this being dealt with by mainstream media? Well, I think there's going to be a lot more to come. And in fact, just last night, John Solomon with Just the News revealed some very incriminating information about Hunter and Joe Biden. The first part of that was video evidence showing that Hunter Biden had indeed traveled a minimum of eight times on foreign trips with the former vice president, now President Joe Biden. And not only had he traveled, but they've really covered it up. So he, they have video footage showing that he was in the limo waiting for his father or that he had exited the plane on the back steps so that he wouldn't be seen. We know that people have been asking for the manifests on these planes and they've been denied access to it. So it's not just that they've lied about it, they've covered this up. And why it matters is because the emails on Hunter Biden's laptop also connect the dots between these meetings that he went on with his dad, that he met with both political and private sector figures for personal gain. The second part of the revelations from John Solomon last night was documentation showing that U.S. policy was that the billion dollars going to be released to the Ukrainians was without conditions. And Joe Biden has always said that it was conditional on firing Shokin, like you said, firing the prosecutor. And so now we have incriminating evidence which shows that what Joe Biden had done was directly against U.S. policy and, in fact, was for personal gain for him and for his family against U.S. policy. So if anybody's been looking for a smoking gun, I think John Solomon and just the news gave it to uh, us absolutely, last night. Absolutely. Look, <clears throat> we'll leave it there, Peggy, but I will just say to our viewers, this is big time, really. And I said earlier at the introduction, Biden can't last. The Republican-controlled House Oversight Committee 
has poured over hundreds of documents subpoenaed from US banks, and they found that Hunter Biden, James Biden, the president's brother, Haley Biden, his daughter-in-law, and an unknown Biden were paid all sorts of money between 2015 and 2017, and that money's come from several countries, including China. Peggy, look, we'll leave it there tonight. It's gonna to get worse. Uh, just a final one before you go. Can Joe Biden survive all of this, or are the Democrats hunting round for another candidate? Well, it remains to be seen because we said last night, I think Joe Biden could, or last week, Joe Biden could give an Oval Office address confessing to everything and the left would still cover for him. The left still runs the Senate, the White House, the DOJ and the FBI. And so it's up to the House Republicans to continue at this. They have per, per, um, continued to be very diligent in this. We hope they persist. But let's remember all these indictments against Donald Trump is nothing but a distraction. They know Joe Biden is guilty. They know he's been lying and the White House has been covering it up. We're gonna to get to the bottom of it. Good on you, Peggy. Good to talk to you. Great to have your insights. Thank, Thank you for your time. Talk to you next week. There she is, Peggy Grandy in America. She's articulate, fluent, knowledgeable. Of course, she was works once for Ronald Reagan. So she knows the scene backwards in the Republican Party. This is hotting up my own view. I don't think Biden can survive all of this. Now, look, before we go, forgive me for saying that I have been going on about this for two decades. Now we have education results, if that's what you call them, of these NAPLAN tests. And if this doesn't shame politicians and teachers, nothing will. You, the taxpayer, have tipped $662 billion into schools since the NAPLAN testing started 15 years ago. $662 billion. Put another way, there's been a 60% increase in spending on schools in the past 20 years. And that increase includes the so-called Gonski funding, a record 72 billion in your money, taxpayer funding was spent on schools last year alone. Yet 430 of the 1.3 million students who sat the NAPLAN tests this year are performing below expectation. Are these your children? 430,000. Only 15%, did I say 430,000 or 430? 430,000 of the 1.3 million who sat. Only 15% of students, roughly 200,000, performed above the expected standard, 15%. Put it another way, students are now twice as likely to fail the NAPLAN tests as they are to excel. But 72 billion was spent on schools last year alone and 662 billion since NAPLAN testing started. Put this another way. If you extrapolate these figures across all 4 million school students in Australia, it would show that 1.3 million children are struggling to meet minimum standards. And I'll tell you why. It's simple. Now, I'm not sure it's capable of repair, by the way. Before I come to the answer, you've got this new education minister, Jason Clare. Let me tell you about this bloke, Clare. He has one of the rudest political officers that I have encountered, and I've been in this game a long time. You are a disgrace, Jason Clare, and so are your staff. He won't speak to us here. His response to all of this was to talk about a national school reform agreement. And this would set long-term school funding from federal, state and territory governments. You see, that's all I can talk about is funding. When 662 billion has produced provable failure. And that failure derives from wrong teaching methods and teaching the wrong things. The kids know the world will end, don't they? Because of climate change, they have been taught Greta Thunberg rubbish. They know we're racists 
because we invaded someone else's country. They're taught that. They know welcome to country, but they can't spell, punctuate or add up. They don't know the history of their own country. They don't know the geography of their own country. The answer is simple, very simple. This failure is the product of incorrect teaching methods and a cluttered curriculum in which what should be taught isn't being taught. And above all, Jason Clare, the problem is not funding. It's returning to old school teaching methods, which involve rote learning, repetition and testing so that children know whether the spelling or the tables or the punctuation or the writing is right or wrong. Let them confront failure and they may seek success. And if they don't, forgive the language, the system is stuffed and $662 billion has been tipped down the drain. Well, that's it from me for tonight and for this week. I hope you have enjoyed the show. Thank you for being with us. You can listen to tonight's program on the podcast app from 6am tomorrow. Just search Alan Jones. Thank you for being with ADH. I am Alan Jones. Good night.